0: Please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. This is going to be the 28th sermon in our Women of Faith uh, series. She's another nameless woman, but she forms a very important part of John's development of this book. John 4, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples... He left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water?' Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have said, Well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world." Now, after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture, and I pray that as we dig into it, you would enable me to be faithful in my exposition, that our hearts would be ready to receive what your Holy Spirit would quicken to our hearts, and, Father, that we would be the better for it. Bless this, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen. To get a well-rounded picture of this woman, I think it would be helpful to see how John uses her story in the development of his overall story. Uh, He does, after all, devote 45 (laughs) verses. It took a long time to read through that uh, to her. And uh, so she must be pretty important to his uh, overall narrative. And I believe she perfectly illustrates some of the central themes of uh, this book. Now, when I was preaching through the book of John, one sermon on the book of John in May of 2020, uh, one of the things that we saw is that John... Just like in the book of Revelation, he has seven very complex interweaving structures in this book that are just amazing, and she plays a part in most of those seven structures. And I'll just use four, and bear with me. I know not everybody's into structures of books, but it is important material to see how it all is cohesive together. First, the book outlines very well as a covenant lawsuit against Israel. Now, on my dating and the dating of uh, many conservative scholars this was written in AD 65 I don't think it's even remotely possible to add uh, more than a year or to subtract more than a year but I'm 100% convinced it was written in AD 65 and God's judgment was about to fall upon uh, Jerusalem upon uh, Israel and John knows that and since he is an apostle to the Jews that's his main calling He is trying to do everything in his power to get the Jews to realize two things. First of all, that their Messiah has already come, and they have rejected their Messiah, and he's calling them to repentance uh, over that. And uh, this is really a gospel tract. This is one of the reasons down through history people have put out Gospels of John as one of the first books that they introduce believers to. There are other good books, too. Mark's a great book to introduce. But John is a fantastic gospel tract. And sometimes you'll get these Gospels that have the way of uh, salvation and other doctrines outlined uh, in it, Uh, but it's a fantastic track. The second thing that John was trying to convince the Jews of is that Jesus is the Savior of the entire world, not just of, of the Jews. And take a look at how he ends the story in verses 43 through 45. Now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they also had gone to the feast. So Galilee received him, Samaria received him. Judea would not. And thematically, this story is helping to set the stage for God's rejection of Israel and sending of the gospel to the far reaches of the globe, Um, starting with Galilee of the Gentiles moving to Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of of the world. So there's um, judgment. That's the bad news. There is how to get out of the judgment. That's the good news, that both are important in our gospel presentation. Second, I have a three-page outline of the book that looks at this book through the lens of the exodus of Moses and Israel out of uh, the land of Egypt. And um, Jesus is the glory cloud in chapter 1 who tabernacles with men and who calls uh, his people out of Egypt, and he's going to develop the idea that, ironically, Israel has become identified as Egypt, and God's people need to be called out of Egypt. He does exactly the same thing in the book of uh, Revelation. And so throughout this book, the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders are treated as unbelievers, just like in Revelation. And this story starts with a controversy with the Pharisees. Take a look at verses one through three. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. They hated both John and Jesus. Uh, They hated John because his baptism implied that Israel was pagan and needed to be converted (laughs) and brought into the, the true church. Uh, Jesus treated all of the unconverted Jews as Gentiles, and uh, that's exactly what his baptism meant. It was a proselyte baptism. And so uh, he was calling people out of the world, out of Egypt, back into the true Israel uh, through baptism, and that offended the Pharisees. Uh, They knew the meaning of baptism. They were not about to consider themselves pagans. Well, here it says Jesus' disciples baptized way more than John's did, so that makes them even more upset with with Jesus. And so Jesus leaves um, uh, Israel, leaves these Pharisees, and he goes to Galilee of the Gentiles in verse 3. And then the very next verse shows that he needed to go to Samaria. So Samaria was treated as way worse than Gentiles were by the Pharisees, just because of their history and I'll deal with that in a little bit. And yet, Jesus brings a huge harvest of disciples into his bride from that uh, enemy territory. And that's the third uh, theme that I want to introduce that of bride and bridegroom. In John 2, you have Jesus acting in the place that a bridegroom would normally act and providing wine. In the next chapter, John very explicitly calls himself uh, the best man and Jesus, the bridegroom, who was seeking a bride. And then the very next chapter is uh, him going to this um, this well of Jacob, the very place where Jacob met uh, his future wife, Rachel. And as Lincoln, Andrew Lincoln points out, his asking for a drink is very similar, almost identical to the words used by Eleazar, the steward of Abraham, when he is seeking a wife for his wife, uh, Uh, his uh, 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 master's son, I guess you would call him. And then those who understand the Exodus themes are immediately going to be reminded that Moses finds his wife by a well as well. Now, all of those are pulled together by John in a masterful way with the very explicit mention of Jacob's well. In fact, uh, there's one author. uh, uh, Let me see if I can see his name who pulls together nine correspondences that are one-to-one correspondences between this story and the story of Jacob going to the well. Those cannot be accidental. They're very deliberately uh, crafted. And the point is that Christ's bride will include far more than simply Jews. Now she's not the bride. Uh, She's just a part of the bride, which constitutes all of these Samaritans who are also going to be coming out to this well to be united uh, to, to Jesus. Now, in each of those cases, the groom is going to a foreign land to find a bride. And so it's a huge structuring, and I can't develop it all the way through the book, but it's a huge structuring element that shows this story is important to it. Now, I'll only mention one more structuring element that might relate, and that is that every chapter of this book is structured around the temple and how the temple points to Christ and how Christ will replace the temple and say that everyone needs to come to him rather than coming to the temple. And, of course, rejecting uh, her Mount Gerizim as well as rejecting Jerusalem is the same theme, right? It's dealing with their temple and uh, her temple. The Samaritans had a temple that they built on Mount Gerizim. and They said, no, this is the true place that, that uh, God wanted uh, his temple to be. And uh, Jesus wipes that concern away by pointing out, once the Messiah has come, earthly location is irrelevant. What matters is whether you're united to him or not. And the specific part of the temple that uh, chapters 4 through 7 is dealing with is the table of showbread where there's 12 loaves of bread and there's these chalices for drinking. And um, uh, in this chapter, Jesus will begin to speak about how he is key to nourishment from heaven and drink from heaven, water from heaven, okay? And in all of this, John is presenting an apologetic for why the Jews must recognize that the gospel goes way beyond them, way beyond them, and reaches every culture, every problem, crosses every obstacle in order to win the world for God. And the Samaritan woman, I think, is a beautiful example of the gospel pulling somebody out of the gutter, crossing geographical, social, racial, and other barriers to form a new temple, a new bride, a new people of God. So structurally, it's just it's just beautiful how this all uh, fits together. Now let's dive into an overview of her story. We see first that Jesus deliberately left the Pharisees, went to the Gentiles, he went first to despise Galilee of the Gentiles, and then to despise Samaria. I've already dealt with that adequately. But then look at the wording of verse 4. But he needed to go through Samaria. Now, the Greek word for needed there is day. It could be translated as he needed to. It was necessary that he go. He must go. Uh, It's um, uh, a very strong word. And so the question comes, why did he need to go into Samaria? Because the Jews actually very self-consciously tried to avoid Samaria, especially the Pharisees. They took a little longer route so as not to go through Samaria, and they actually told people not to go uh, through uh, that area. Unless, of course, you had an army like Josephus one time went through there. And uh, no kidding, the tensions were so high, you almost needed an army to accompany you through that area Uh, and I'll get into some of the tensions and why that was the case. So the must did not have anything to do with this being the shortcut, this being he had to go through Samaria because this is the best route to go. It was actually one of the worst routes for Jews to go at this uh, particular time. So why use that strong term? Well, theologians speak of the divine day. Day is the Greek word for must, the divine must that dictated every hour of Christ's life. He had to go into Samaria because this was the time that God had predestined for him to seek this woman and draw her, who lacked all fellowship with other people, to draw her into fellowship with himself and through her begin to spread the gospel to the other Samaritans. An unwanted, a despised woman is sought by the Father. They've been a very encouraging thing for her. Now, if you look at your outlines, you'll see that John is going to introduce several div- div- divides, uh, barriers that Jesus deliberately crossed over. And I think each of these barriers is continues to be an encouragement uh, to those who feel alienated from God. And I think it's also an encouragement to us to cross over barriers, you know, to take the gospel to other people. Uh, first divide was a racial divide. Verse 5 says, So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sikhar. Samaria was occupied by the descendants of Joseph, uh, way up there, northern Israel. And they were intermixed with other nationalities. But the connection here to Joseph is highlighted for a reason. And we're going to be seeing that in two or three points. The next phrase says near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. So Jacob gave that plot of land to Joseph in faith because he believed that God claimed all of Palestine and for that matter, really all of the world. But hundreds of years later, the northern tribes had apostatized and God dispersed them throughout the world and then Assyria... Uh, did not take all of the Jews out. They left some Jews there. They imported other kinds of peoples there. This was their strategy to kind of get rid of any loyalties, national loyalties. And then all of these Jews intermarried and intermixed with those peoples. So the Mar- Samaritans uh, were uh, a mixed uh, people. Now things did not go too well, uh, the book of Kings uh, tells us. There were lions killing people, there was other problems happening, and so the king of Assyria assumed, hmm, maybe the god of that land needs to be reintroduced to that land, otherwise things are not going to go well. He's a polytheist, right, so he doesn't have any problem with adding new gods. So he added Jehovah to their worship, brought in some priests, and they developed basically a new religion that followed the Pentateuch, at least parts of the Pentateuch, they kind of changed it a little bit, and then rejected the rest of the Old Testament. And so that there would be a divide, they set up a temple on Mount Gerizim uh, that would be in, in conflict or in competition with the other temple. And uh, the Jews had destroyed the temple of the Samaritans, which incredibly angered. Uh, the Samaritans, and I'll just give you another example concerning the racial tensions between them. Just 20 years before he talked to this woman, some Samaritans went into Jerusalem disguised as Jews. They went into the temple on the feast of Passover with a whole bunch of bags of human bones, and they scattered the bones all throughout the temple to defile that temple. You can imagine the outrage of the Jews that happened. There was continual uprisings of war between these two countries in the years that were uh, between there. The leaders of both communities demonized the other community, trying to inflame the passions of the people. So the point is, at the very time they're going through Samaria racial tensions are at their height, at their height. But despite racial tensions, God's grace has always been designed to carry the gospel of the kingdom across racial barriers. And people say, well, what about in the Old Testament? Yes, even in the Old Testament, it was designed to be that way. In the Old Testament... Missions was intended to be centripetal. A centripetal force draws things in. And so God set up the temple with beautiful ceremonies to picture the gospel to be a magnetic force to draw all nations into Jerusalem. How do I know that? Well, just look at the outer court. It was the court of the Gentiles, right? They didn't even have to get circumcised to become Jews. God accepted their worship. They could become Jews and get all the way into the center, but God accepted their worship. There was missions going on. That's God's intention all the way through the Old Testament. And what the Pharisees refused to do, reach the Samaritans, Jesus did. The gospel was always designed to cross racial lines, and we should not be afraid to cross racial lines in Omaha. Next, it crossed travel taboos, As I mentioned, strict Jews didn't have any interest in evangelizing Samaritans, going into Samaria. Uh, They certainly would not have traded with them, bought food from them, anything along those lines. And yet, Jesus deliberately violated travel taboos that had been set up by the Pharisees. Third, his missions involved crossing social boundaries. And I won't get into it in detail, but there were quite different social customs from the Jews and the Samaritans, and um, the differences would make yet another area of discomfort. Fourth, his mission involved crossing gender taboos. Uh, The scribes, Pharisees, and rabbis had developed some very, very unbiblical traditions that were quite misogynistic. Uh, They would never be caught talking to a woman in public, and certainly not in private, and some of these Pharisees actually said, you shouldn't talk to your wife too much. Uh, let me read you just some quotes from famous teachers of that period. Philo said, All public life with its discussions and deeds is proper for men. It is only suitable for women to live indoors and to live in retirement. Rabbi Jose Ben-Yohanan, 150 years before Christ, said, Talk not much with women. He would have definitely disapproved with what Jesus is doing here. The Mishnah, which was the oral teachings of the Pharisees of Christ, day, said this, He that talks much with women brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law, and at the end he inherits hell. Rabbi Eliezer said, If a man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is as though he taught her lechery. In another place he said, It is better that the words of the law should be burned than that they should be given to a woman. And James Hurley, in his book, he documents a lot of other things like this, and he says this actually was a prevalent view among the the, the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, the rabbis. And so what he's setting up is that Jesus, in all of his behavior, was bucking the unbiblical social traditions of that time in order to have missions to everyone, including women. Even drinking from a vessel carried by this woman would have been considered, at least by the Pharisees, to make one unclean. Yet, yeah, verse 7, a woman of Samaria came to draw a well. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now just try to imagine that statement in the context of the huge tensions between the Jews and the Samaritan. I mean, this was an incredibly powerful statement that would have sliced through centuries of hatred, prejudice, and um, suspicion. If a taboo was not biblical, Jesus just ignored the cultural taboos of his day. In fact, you read the Gospels, you can't miss the fact he went out of his way to try to break the taboos, the unbiblical taboos of his day. And the Old Testament repeatedly commanded Israel, bring the good news to the nations. For example, uh, Psalm 67, 2 says that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Okay, Verse 8 shows that Jesus deliberately violated Pharisaical food taboos. The four at the beginning of verse 8 indicates that ordinarily the disciples would have gotten water for him, but they've gone into the village to buy food. Uh, You know, the disciples even are breaking some of these uh, taboos. So it says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Now ordinarily, Jews would not eat food that was prepared by a Samaritan since it was considered unclean. Now that's not a biblical rule. There are all kinds of rules that were set up by the Pharisees. And all of this totally surprised the woman. She was not used to this kind of generous kind treatment from Jews. Verse 9, then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you being a Jew ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Notice that absolute statement. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Barrier after barrier is being ignored in order to engage in missions, and the very crossing of those barriers is just astounding to this woman. What Jesus was doing was far more politically incorrect than when we violate mask mandates or vaccine mandates, or when I get canceled on the statements I make on Facebooks. Like, where did that disappear to? Uh, his his breaking of their <laughs> their taboos was way more politically correct than what we are facing today. The last obstacle was talking to an immoral woman. Now, the fact that she was immoral is already hinted at, and the fact that she came at the sixth hour. Now, you've got to look at Jewish time. There's six hours of night from, uh, from uh, 6 p.m. to uh, dawn. And then there's 12 hours of day from dawn to 6 p.m. And so the sixth hour would be noon when she came, and that's the hottest hour. It was not the greatest time to be, you know, pulling a bucket of water uh, up out of, the, uh, out of the well, which if the identity of Jacob's well is correct, what most archaeologists say, it's 100 feet deep. So was, you're pulling water quite a ways up and then filling your your huge pot, and then you're carrying that pot one mile through the hot sun back to uh, your village. Uh, those of you who have indoor plumbing, I think it's all of you, right? Uh, those of you who have indoor plumbing, you cannot appreciate the incredible amount of work it takes just to get your daily water in most third world countries. We are living in luxury. But Anyway, the fact that she came at noon indicates she was a social pariah, and we'll look at her immorality in a bit. But let's, let's take a look at some of her characteristics. First of all, she was simple-minded. A more sophisticated uh, thinker might have caught the significance of Christ's various allusions to the Old Testament spiritual waters. That's what verses four, uh, 10 through 14 are dealing with. He does, after all, say this is a gift from God, and it results in everlasting life. It's obviously not talking about physical water. It's not literal, but she's a literalist. And she says, well, how are you going to get me that kind of water? You don't have a bucket. You don't have a, a rope and the, the well is very deep. Okay. So she's somewhat thim- simpler in her thinking. He explains himself in verses 13 through 14, that the kind of water he's talking about is meeting a deep, a spiritual thirst, inner renewal, eternal life. She still doesn't get it. Says, uh, you know, she, she brings up the water that she needs to carry to the village again. So she's simple-minded, and yet Jesus needed to go through Samaria to reach this simple woman because she was dear to God's heart. You are not dear to God's heart because of your intellect. The Father does not seek you because of your intellect. You are not needed because of your intellect. I mean, he's omniscient, Right? he's omniscient. God unites through the gospel, the simple and the intellectual, and they are equal in God's kingdom. That's one of the applications of the true gospel. Next, if you look at the way that Jesus words himself, you'll see that he knew that she longed for something more than what she had. In verse 10, Jesus says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. If you knew, you would have asked, she would have asked because he knew that she longed for something that she did not have and that Jesus could provide. So what is it that Jesus sees that we maybe miss in the 21st is it 21st or 22nd? Yeah, 21st century. Thank you. Sam not. Not it. Well, first of all, he knew that she was a social outcast. In former times, she probably had fun going with the other girls in the cool of the day. You know, there may have been singing and maybe some light banter and talking and the latest gossip. And, and yet, once she started sleeping around, they shunned her. They took, uh, turned their backs on her. She was treated as an outcast. Indeed, the talk about her would have been so uncomfortable that she preferred to avoid all company and to travel alone. It was rare for women to ever travel alone. So it's pretty clear she's a social pariah. And, of course, this probably meant that she longed to be accepted and that she was lonely, okay? It was no doubt why she, she um, had her first encounter with a guy, a desire to be hugged, to belong, to be told that you're loved and needed. Oh, to be loved. Oh, to be needed, to be wanted. She knew she was not needed academically. Nobody needed her intellect. She knew that the girls didn't need her friendship. They had their own friendship. She probably knew that she was guilty of violating God's law, you know, through her fornication and her adultery. But her deep longing to belong and to be wanted helped her to justify that wrong. By the way, this is uh, uh, one of the chief reasons that uh, women get involved in sexual immorality. Uh, They don't have their their dad's heart. Uh, They want to be loved just as they are. And uh, the first man to take advantage of her no doubt made her feel good, at least for a while. He wanted her. That felt good. She belonged. She was loved, or at least so she thought. I mean, after all, he he offered to marry her, and uh, yet he ditched her, and her world collapsed, and longing for more of the same, uh, she married another and married another. And uh, to get those same longings fulfilled, she moved from one man to another, creating a trail of destruction and marriages and brokenness of lives that no doubt made her feel guilty. She knew deep down she was immoral and dirty, but she had a thirst that needed to be filled, and she didn't know any other way of filling that thirst. Now, Jesus offers her living waters to quench the thirst that never seemed to leave her. Now, she's evasive, not wanting to get into spiritual talk. Spiritual talk's going to make her feel guilty. Yes, he talked about a gift of God and living waters, but she preferred to keep the conversation on something a little bit more neutral, uh, regular waters. Evangelism is always poking through those uncomfortable bare boundaries, and we need to get used to that discomfort. So she engages him in a debate on the subject of the well. Now, some commentators say that actually she's maybe testing him to see if he's like some of the other men, take it, willing to take advantage of her, even though, really, if you look at Jacob's well, there's a straight line of sight. It was out in the public, uh, you know, so anyway... Uh, I think it's more likely, and most commentators think it's more likely, she is simply being evasive. Verse 11 The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now, the way that the Greek is worded, it expects a negative answer. Are you greater than Jacob? No, obviously not. No descendant of Jacob could possibly be greater than Jacob. Everybody knows that, and yet Jesus obviously is greater than Jacob, and she just doesn't know it yet. But she throws this out because it could be fodder for a discussion that was less convicting. And when you evangelize, you will often find people debate you with inconsequential theological ideas and other ideas just to get you off track. But Jesus doesn't take the bait. He doesn't defend himself. He gets to the heart of the issue by saying, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So he's making it clear the water he's talking about is to satisfy her spiritual hunger, her spiritual thirst. She's either dense or evasive or both. When she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Now, it's not a very sophisticated evasion. It again highlights her simplicity, but Jesus just ignores her question, starts to bring conviction over her sin. Now, she's definitely going to get that. We can count on the fact that every Man, woman, and child has a built-in knowledge of the law. God has placed it there, and they cannot escape it. They try to suppress the knowledge of that law when they're sinning, but they know they're guilty. They know that they are sinners. He says, go call your husband and come here. He knew what was going on in her life, and he's going to confront her over her sin. Evangelism must always confront sin. Sin. It is not evangelism if there is no confrontation of sin. Though we are justified by faith alone, we're not justified by any kind of a faith that does not leave something because faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. You can't turn to God unless you're turning away from something, right? And this is why Ray Comfort has always tried to introduce the law into evangelistic outreaches. The law brings conviction And with conviction, people's hearts are opened up to the gospel. Now, the woman is evasive with this probing of Jesus by saying, I have no husband. That was a partial truth, but it was designed to give misdirection. Well, Jesus doesn't let her off the hook. Verses 17 through 18, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, In that you spoke truly. So Jesus is exposing her sins. Now she no doubt had guilt in her conscience over having broken marriage covenants and uh, over sleeping around now. And it may seem rude to us in the 21st century to point out sin like this in other people's lives, but let me say again, there is no evangelism without pointing out sin. It's a fake evangelism. True evangelism acts as a scalpel that reveals the cancer within. When Jesus says, in that, tuta, you spoke truly, he is implying, but earlier, you had deceptive misdirection. Earlier, you weren't entirely speaking the truth. Okay? That's that's what he was uh, saying. But even here, she's not yet at the stage of repentance. You can speak truth without having genuine repentance. And this can be seen by the fact she doesn't really admit to what he's saying, to her sleeping around, but instead tries to change the subject and to engage him in another theological argument, another evasion. Verse 19, the woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive you're a prophet.'" Now she says that you're a prophet, you'll be able to answer this question. Okay? "'Our Father is worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship.'" Now, I have seen Jehovah's Witnesses, and Mormons do this all the time, over and over again. When you get into something they can't answer, or you get into a subject where they're feeling very uncomfortable, one of them, by the way, is, I have assurance that I'm going to heaven. Do you have assurance of your salvation? Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons really can't answer that question. They can never have assurance of their salvation. So anyway, when you get to something they can't answer or something that they're uncomfortable about, they have been trained to immediately bring up a question that will be intriguing to you that you'll want to debate them on. And if you take the bait, you're just going to be spinning. You're not going to get anywhere. Inexperienced evangelists do this all the time. Well, interestingly, Jesus actually answers this rabbit trail this red herring, because it will help in this particular situation to do so. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. So he is making clear that the Samaritan religion is wrong, that they do not have the truth, they do not have the way of salvation, and that may seem rude too. But without confronting false thinking, you are not engaging in true evangelism. He is closing the door to theological dialogue on her terms. But he wants to make it clear that this debate between Jerusalem and Gerizim, even though there's a true answer right now, it's at the temple, right? It's going to become irrelevant once the Messiah has come because it is going to be replaced by him. So he keeps important things important in his discussions. Verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But those same verses were an invitation to trade in her false worship of a God whom she could never please, and could never find acceptance with, and to look to a God whom Jesus calls a father, a father seeking the lost, seeking adoration from women just like her. That word seeking such is not just a call to repentance, it is that, but it's also a glimmer of hope that the father may be accepting of her as well, even in her condition. She longed for a relationship, and this father that Jesus was pre- preaching provided that relationship the samaritans knew nothing of god as a father he was only a god whom you tried to appease and as a side note the samaritans had been looking forward to the messiah or the prophet that moses talked about in the pentateuch predicted would come they they did sort of believe in the pentateuch so as her sins are staring her in the face she begins to wonder verse 25 the woman said to him i know the messiah is coming who is called christ when he comes he will tell us all things So as simple as she was, God's Holy Spirit was at work, and she begins to connect the dots. And you can trust the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind verses that will cut through and give enlightenment to the most obtuse person out there. You can trust the Holy Spirit to work through you. Well, Jesus makes his identity far more clear to her than he has so far to any Jew up to this point. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's all he said to her, and her world came crashing down upon her. And that's at the precise stage when the other disciples come up, and they're wondering, what in the world is Jesus doing talking with a woman? They've picked up some of the Pharisaical ideas, but they don't dare question him. But she appears to have been genuinely converted, and the void in her heart completely filled. Why do I say that? Well, her faith, I think, is evidenced by three things. Let's take a quick look at them. Verse 28 says, The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, You don't leave water pots behind in that culture. Those are very important tools, and it could be stolen by somebody. But she is so excited about her discovery, she leaves it there. She runs into the town to tell her message, and she no doubt plans to come back to him to pick up her pot, but also to talk to him, but she doesn't want to slow herself down. That's why she didn't take the pot. You can't carry water. How many here have carried a big pot of water? They're incredibly heavy. So she leaves it behind. And who are the first ones that she shares the good news with? It's the men. In other words, all six men whom she has previously been in sin with. This is frequently the way the gospel flows. It reaches out to your oikos, which is your web of relationships. And those men are at least men whom she feels comfortable talking to. So she said uh, to the men, come see a man. She's leading them uh, to Christ. She wants them to see him too. And this is almost always what happens when people are newly saved. They are compelled to tell all other sinners what has just happened to them. Oh, that our church would rekindle a desire that should be natural to all new believers to share the gospel with everyone. It should be natural to us. And we're going to try to make this uh, whole year devoted to rekindling this desire and ability to share the gospel. We're going to be sharing tools with you and uh, sharing some uh, training with you and opportunities to grow in this and uh, try to make it as simple as possible. Michael uh, Elliott's the one who's uh, heading that up and and the leadership team. And uh, other members of the leadership team are uh, Bill Crilly, uh, John Mays, Daniel Noor. Actually, all of the elders are on there as well. But great team to work with. We're pretty excited about uh, some of the plans for the future. So take advantage of these tools and opportunities as they come up. So first, her faith is evidenced with the haste with which she left her pot, implying she's going to come back to him. Evidenced by sharing her faith. Third, it was evidenced by admission of her sins. Man, it takes a lot to get people to admit to their sins, doesn't it? She admits to the truthfulness of what Jesus had said in verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all th- the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, the could does not have to imply that she has doubt, it might. But it could be that she's just trying to be humble. She knows nobody trusts her, she's not good for her word, and why should they trust her on this? And so she's trying to be humble, but it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a a doubt. But let's say that there is doubt. That ought not to disturb you when people first come to Christ, and then they have doubts about their salvation. Doubts frequently accompany our faith uh, in the initial stages of our walk. So don't be disturbed by that. But she admits he knew all about her sinful past, and she's okay with that. In fact, she's excited about that. And as a result of her testimony, the whole village comes to Christ. By the way, this is not a rare phenomenon today either. In the last hundred years, there have been many people movements. People movements are where an entire tribe or people group will come to Christ in a matter of days or weeks or months. I mean, it's just really exciting what God is, uh, is, is doing out there. Anyway, in verses 30 through 38, Jesus looks at the people flowing in. They're coming in in their white robes out of the village to the well and he uses an analogy of fields being white to harvest. Now, I'm not going to comment on those verses, because my focus is on the woman, but they're fabulous verses. He's moving you know, from uh, you know, issues of bread into issues of evangelism. Uh, let's just read through that, beginning at verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, "'Rabbi, eat.' But he said to them, "'I have food to eat of which you do not know.' Therefore the disciples said to one another, "'Has anyone brought him anything to eat?' Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to finish his work. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for the harvest. And he who reaps receives wages, and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, One sows and another reaps." I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. It is so cool to play a part in some other person's conversion. It's just wonderful. God has given me that privilege a few times in my life, but not nearly as many times as people who have the gift of evangelism. Uh, But it, it really is cool when it does happen. For some, it's just going to involve your sharing the truth, and they walk on, and they don't do anything. But you're the first of several people who shares the truth with them, and eventually it connects. Uh, for other people, it might be just praying Maybe even going on the team, two by two, they sent them. One sharing the gospel, the other's praying like mad that this person will receive the gospel. Or it might be you're the one who's actually led that person to Christ, but it doesn't matter. If you're a part of the harvest, you are sharing in the rewards of every other person who was a part of that harvest. I love this concept uh, where God almost equalizes, despite their gifts, he equalizes the rewards because he says you share You give a cup of cold water to a prophet, you're going to receive the prophet's reward, right? We can share in each other's rewards if each one of us will play some part in the outreach of our church. Now the next verses show that Jesus and the disciples established a believing community among the Samaritans. It is so important that new believers get connected with a good, godly, believing community where there could be accountability and and prayer and sharing together. Jesus and the disciples are invited to stay with many more coming to Christ as a result of this sinful woman coming to Christ. And so again, the the gospel spreads through networks of relationship, what some people call the oikos principle. By the way, and I should have probably brought this up to the evangelism team, I've got a book on my shelf that's actually quite good. It's an evangelism method called oikos evangelism. And it takes advantage of this principle. Uh, They've done... I shouldn't go down rabbit trails. (laughs) But they have done statistical analysis all across America, Canada, other Western nations, and even in some of the third world countries of how people came to Christ. And I think it's over 90% of people, even if they got saved at a crusade, even if they got saved through some other method, they said, well, it was because I saw a relative or a friend or another business associate And their life was so transformed, I was intrigued and I was drawn in. And that's why I went to the Crusader. I went to something else. By far, the vast majority, this is God's principle of evangelism. And I'm riding on a high horse here. But oikos evangelism, just sharing the gospel with those whom you have networks with, is so important. It's it's the way that God is most highly blessed. Now, it's true that because of her reputation, some were reluctant to say that they believed because of her testimony. They preferred to say, no, no, it's because of Christ's testimony. But John insists they did believe because of her testimony. And I'll just read the rest of the story without comment and then make some final applications from her life. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So what are some final applications? Well, first, we often get nervous about sharing our faith because we convince ourselves we don't have the gift of gab, which, by the way, is not an essential for evangelism. We think we don't have the gift of gab, and so we don't, we don't ever share with anybody but verse 39 shows that many believed in Jesus. It says, quote, because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. That's all she said. That's not much of a testimony. But that resulted in people coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw that she was forgiven of her sins. They wanted the same thing for themselves. So be encouraged. God knows how to use even the simplest of testimonies just be willing to testify. My dad told me the story of a retarded man, and I think I've probably shared this with you before, but he really wanted to engage in evangelism. This is in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, he's on the street. He's nervous, and he goes up to a businessman, and he says, do you want to go to heaven? And uh, the businessman very roughly said, no. And the retarded man says, well, go to hell then. (laughs) Now, I don't recommend this method of evangelism, okay? But God can use even our blown testimonies. And we just come away and say, why did I say that? This is so terrible. I have seen over and over how God used even the worst of our testimonies to lead people to Christ. And that's exactly what happened with this businessman. For some reason, he grabbed the tract and hurried on. But he could not get that phrase out of his head over and over all day long. Well, go to hell then. Well, go to hell then. Well, go to hell then. And he knew he was headed to hell. So he finally read the track, got converted. And because there was the name of the church on the back, he went to that Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia. God discipled, eventually told the pastor what had happened to him. Okay. So the point is, God is not limited by our limitations we think our, it's all up to us. It is not up to you at all. Salvation is of the Lord, is what Gary said earlier in the service, right? Salvation is of the Lord. And so all we have to do is be willing to testify, and God can use our weakness to lead people to Christ. Second, be a true friend to sinners. Many times we have the mistaken idea of what a, a true friend does. I have talked to people who have overlooked the rebellion, the fornication, the lies and the other sins of their friend because they think well that's what a friend has got to do he's got to be supportive they've got this bad idea of unconditional love let me tell you something true love does not enable people in their sins true love wants the holiness of that other person a true love even rebukes what does jesus say in revelation 3:9 as many as i love i rebuke right So if we would be true friends of sinners, we need to preach not just the gospel, but the law and the gospel. We need to push past barriers to true friendship. We need to push past barriers of sin and pride to true friendship. So be a true friend of sinners, not a fake friend. Third, be a true friend of the outcast. Now that doesn't mean you're going to wallow in the pit with the outcast. No, you're going to pull them out out of the pit and get them washed off. Now, other people may throw them back into the pit again, but your goal is to pull them out, disciple them, apply God's grace, love on them, you know, minister to them out of that. Many of the men are going through the deacon's training class or mercy ministries training class, whatever you want to call it. But one of the things that we're, we're seeing is it's not up to the deacons to do all of the work of mercy ministries and pulling people out of the pit, they're the leaders who are stirring up and equipping the saints for that work of mercy ministries, right? So when those in the gutter know that they are loved, sought out, and accepted despite their ugly past, they can make huge progress. Now Jude does warn us to take precautions when we do this. Let me read that for you. It says, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. You've got to make a distinction between different kinds of sinners. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Not hating the person, but hating the garment defiled by the flesh, which says basically the sins that surround this person. When pushing past some barriers, you don't want him to fall into the same sin yourself, is basically what he is saying. Or you don't want to be falsely accused and gain a bad reputation. I want you to notice, Jesus was not in a room all by himself with this woman. That would not be a cool thing. He was out, plain visible view, straight eye view from the village to that well. Um, So anyway... um, Fourth, we must learn to drink from Christ and not constantly be searching for water in broken cisterns. You're not going to be a very convincing witness to a thirsty unbeliever if you have never drunk of Christ yourself. This lady was looking for love, acceptance, approval, belonging in all of the wrong places. And we see that with Christians and with unbelievers. You know, some people try to find belonging, acceptance, approval by joining a teenage gang, a drug gang, or something like that. Some use sex to try to uh, be accepted. Within the church, some think that if I could get married, I would be fulfilled. Uh, That will fix the emptiness. But a good marriage is no substitute. For the waters that Jesus supplies. Some try to find acceptance by going along with uncomfortable things that other kids are saying and you just don't want to be judged so you don't say anything. Well we shouldn't be talking about that. You just keep silent because you want to be accepted. Others find it in getting attention but Jesus says no matter what the creational waters are that you are trying to find acceptance with they're going to still leave you thirsty. Let me repeat that. Jesus says that all creational waters will leave you thirsty. They're not intended to fill the void. The gift of God that he supplies is different. It will provide a spring of water from within that never needs to go dry. And there are several Old Testament passages that he no doubt had in view. But I think Jeremiah 2.13 is likely one of them. It says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So two sins, they've forsaken God, who alone can provide those living waters in our lives that will satisfy, and then they've gone out and they've looked at something else, broken cisterns uh, to hold the water that they think will satisfy them. Fifth, we must get out of our comfort zones to share the gospel. Now, traveling to a Samaria is much easier for us. You don't have to walk a long ways. All you have to do is drive down to Benson or, uh, you know, uh, go to a park uh, or go downtown or a St. Patrick's Day parade. You know, I've been advertising that a lot lately, haven't I? Uh, Just sharing the gospel with those whom God has prepared to listen. And it may mean that you're going to have to talk with people who have nasty-smelling breath Or you may have a a guy that comes up to you, hey, can I have a a dollar I haven't eaten in two days? And you say, you know what? I'm going to leave the parade, and I'm going to go and take this person to McDonald's and share the gospel with this person. Some fantastic opportunities uh, to do that kind of a thing. Or it may simply be that you share the gospel with each other. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, you're sharing what God's grace has done in you in the last week. God has convicted me of this sin, and he's been giving me victory over my anxiety or over my anger, whatever the thing might be. That's sharing the gospel with each other. The gospel needs to be an ordinary part of our lives, but we must get past our comfort zones and break past the barriers that Satan sets up. Sixth, we haven't fully shared the good news of the gospel until we've also shared the bad news of exposing sin. And this has really grieved me in in, in my lifetime. Many approaches to evangelism are really just psychological manipulation, and they produce what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls psychological conversions, counterfeit conversions, not true conversions. Okay, the true historic gospel applies the law to expose the need for grace. After thoroughly exposing sin, then applies the bomb of Gilead. And I think Ray Comfort does a brilliant job of showing the importance of the law and preparing the way for the gospel. Another application of this woman is that she represents the plague of divorce and remarriage that we see in our broken country. But, and this is an important but, she was welcomed into the church despite her past divorces. Believe it or not, I know many churches that re- make as a requirement of membership that you can't ever have been divorced before it's like what <laughs> you mean you don't reach into the gutter and bring people out no they, they they require that it's very sad now it's true that God intended marriage to be between one man and one woman and obviously there are exceptions uh, you know when the guilty party has broken the covenant But the D word, divorce, should never be on the lips of Christians. It should not be a part of our conversation or an option. This woman had bounced from one husband to another, as Jeremiah 2.13 words it. She had bounced from one broken cistern to another. And finally, tired of the hassle of marriage, was now sleeping around without any commitment to marriage. No true believer should find themselves in this place. And she became a convert who repented and presumably changed. Now, just as a side note, there is a false theory out there that I have run across in Omaha that sex equals marriage. In other words, that if two young people uh, have sex, they're automatically married. No, it does not mean that. Jesus clearly distinguishes between the previous five husbands. In other words, there was a marriage that took place. It's a legally binding marriage that took place. He distinguishes between them and the one that she was with not being her husband. Sex with the sixth one did not constitute marriage. The law of God provided for marriage as a possibility for young people who have had premarital sex, but it is not a foregone conclusion. And the father can actually forbid it. And if he's an unbeliever, he should forbid it, right? Two rights do not make for a wrong. And just to illustrate this, let's say that some single guy commits adultery with a married person. On this theory, that married person should divorce their wife and marry him because they're now married. That's ridiculous. Absolutely, absolutely ridiculous. So there's a clear difference between sex and marriage. Marriage is a covenant, not an act of lust. And this bad theory has messed up many a person. A ninth application is that worship is not simply about going to church. All of the Samaritans went to church, all of them. It's not about communion with God. What a wonderful word communion or fellowship would have been to this woman who longed for fellowship, acceptance, and belonging. This God is not about mere externalities. He is about a heart engaged to him. He seeks, that's a word that's just astounding. He seeks, he wants us to seek him as a daughter, would seek fellowship with her father. That is, if she had a a good father. And I'll end with the significance of Jacob's well. Jacob built an altar on this site and called it El Elohe Israel. That means the God of Israel. Now, this was the second piece of property in Palestine that was owned by an Israelite. The first piece was purchased by Abraham as a burial spot. And then Jacob got this piece as a life-giving thing. And so between the life-giving waters and the burial, it covers God's territory on everything, doesn't it? From life to death. Before dying, Jacob deeded this plot of land to his son Joseph. Now that shows huge future orientation. None of them were in the land, and they wouldn't be for hundreds of years, but he deeded it to his son anyway. It later became the place where Joseph's bones were buried, and Hebrews 11.22 says that Joseph had asked that this be done as a statement of faith that his descendants would indeed inherit the land just as God had promised. And he, he, he had that faith without seeing it, okay? God's saints can inherit the land generationally or by conversion. In this case, it's by conversion. And to make it symbolically clear that they were indeed leaving the Samaritan religion For the one true church of all ages, Jesus made them, the Samaritans, come out to this well, okay? To the place of El Elohe Israel, or the God of Israel. He was requiring them to join, leaves the Samaritan religion, to join the true Israel. And so what they were doing is they're rejecting their God, their worship, their corrupted scriptures, their traditions for the one true God of the Old and the New Testament. sitting on Jacob's well represented antithesis between Samaria and the God of Israel. When I was preaching in India, there were other teams that would just preach a very truncated, uh, easy-believism gospel, and thousands of Indians would raise their hand. Yeah, I want Jesus in my life. You see, polytheists have no problem adding another god to their household pantheon hey, you never know. Another God might help in a situation that these gods can't help in. So they'll gladly bring in another person. What we did, and it made for much lesser numbers, but there were still dozens who would come to Christ despite that, we told them, Our God will be insulted. He is over all gods, and our God will be insulted if you try to mix him with anything else. You must insult your gods by publicly destroying those gods. Make a clean break from Hinduism and embrace the true God of Christianity. The church must restore a belief in antithesis like this woman did at Jacob's well. And may that antithesis be maintained without compromise throughout our lives. Amen. Father, I thank you for this long passage of Scripture, and I thank you for the lessons that are in it, and I pray that we would internalize these and uh, that we would never grow tired of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with those that we know. Bless this, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.